1: There is no better group of plants of power than forms of the shrubby
0: potentilla. Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to answer some of your gardening queries. There are some great events happening this week in the world of horticulture and I'll be telling you about them shortly. Later on, I'll be joined by one of the UK's leading environmentalists, an expert on wildlife gardening. It's Professor Chris Baines. What unbelievable weather we had on Monday. Goodness, it was like all our springs together. Absolutely beautiful. And if uh, the top 20 selling things are anything to go by, then it's onion sets that you're all nipping out to get and they could certainly go into the soil if it's dry enough. The news this week is that the seed company Thompson & Morgan of Ipswich have been sold. Surprising really They've been bought by a a specialist mail order company that's into all kinds of things, fishing, sheds, but everything by mail order. It's the first time that I recall a seed company going out into other industries, and it will be very interesting to see what synergies they produce. There's also a bit of a rumour going around that uh, Dobby's Garden Centre up in Edinburgh that were recently sold by Tesco, are having some sort of conversations with b and I don't know how much truth there is in that. We'll have to just watch that space. Now, there's several things you need to remember about this week, because on Friday, I think it's St. Patrick's Day, isn't it? It's what the nursery trade call Garden Relief Day the leaf being LEAF, and it's their sort of kick-off to the gardening year. And a number of garden centres and retailers are doing all kinds of uh, crazy things to raise money for Greenfingers, amongst other things. I mean, for example, a number of garden centres uh, are having 24 hour plantathons, where they're planting up containers right the way through the night. I think that uh, Klondike up in uh, Scotland and the north, they're having a go at it and, and several more. And also a little closer to my home in uh, Essex, uh, Meadowcroft Garden Centre will have uh, this coming weekend the opening of their Pansy and Viola Festival. They've been doing that for some years and they have over 700 different kinds of Pansy and Viola. If you want to see what is currently the best, that is the place to go. And if you go on a warm and sunny day do take time to smell the violas. Many of these small violas now are really quite sweetly scented uh, and so they're worth putting up a little bit higher perhaps into window boxes and hanging baskets and they're great plants. If you've got the patience to do a bit of deadheading and take the uh, dying flowers off then they'll flower well for months and months. When the weather gets really hot, if you've got them in a hanging basket, it's worth moving them round to somewhere a bit shaded so it's not quite so hot. Uh, If you get very high temperatures, then both pansies and violas, the flower size shrinks a bit, so keeping them cool helps. It's a good time, too, to start dahlias into growth. You know, if you've bought a dahlia tuber from uh, your local garden centre, if you pot it up straight away and get a few shoots then you can take one or two of those shoots as cuttings, root them and of course you'll have a few more plants for your money. The important thing is to take the cutting pretty early, before it gets too tall. You certainly don't want it to have a big hollow stem because if the cutting does have uh, that kind of hollow bit up the centre, then they get more tricky to root. You can also root delphiniums. Actually, The treatment for them is really uh, quite unique as far as I'm concerned. If you've got a big clump of delphiniums in the garden with several shoots, then it won't do any harm to cut one or two off. Uh, Run your knife down, so in a perfect world you take off a little bit of blackish coloured root at the bottom, and then this three inch tall cutting, you need to take it, get a pound jam jar, put a bit of white perlite or coarse sand in the bottom, about half an inch or so deep, and then cover it with water. Dip the base of the delphinium cutting into some rooting hormone. Not essential, but it it helps. And then just push that into the damp sand. You don't need to cover the jam jar, because the cutting is pretty well inside the glass. Put it on a north-facing windowsill and be patient. Could take four to six weeks to root, and as soon as you see roots forming on the bottom, Then you can pot the plant up and you've got another delphinium which will be uh, coming into flower probably in uh, August or September. I'm joined now by one of Britain's leading wildlife gardeners, Mr Chris Baines. Now Chris, you're the man really who we always think of when it comes to wildlife gardening. How did it all begin?
1: Well, I guess I've always been interested in the outdoors, and uh, my mum and dad were great teachers, really. My dad was a teacher, and he was of the old brigade who used to have a nature table in the corner of the classroom. Um, So I grew up being kind of shown things and enthused about wildflowers and birds and the countryside generally. This was in, in Sheffield, where There's a great tradition of getting out into the countryside, you know, the mass trespass that opened up the national parks started in Sheffield. So that's my kind of origins, really. And both my mum and dad, actually, but particularly my mum was a great gardener, really, Um, really could get roots on anything, you know. And so from a very early age, I was interested in those two things.
0: They're not easy to bring together in practice, are they,
1: Chris? Well, no, it's a, there's a tension there, of course. Um, and certainly, I mean, I, I decided that I wanted to work outdoors, uh, but I wanted to teach, really. That was my, when I was in the sixth form, you know, wondering what to do with my life. And horticulture was the thing that I settled on. Um, and I went to, I worked on the parks department for a year, but then went to, to Y College, for three years to study horticulture and I really was I spent three years being taught how to kill everything to be honest I mean it was uh, um, mid-60s and the idea of wildlife in the garden was it was either a weed or a pest or a disease and you know we had a way of dealing with it kind of thing so <laughs> that, was, that was my kind of introduction I suppose and I had um, some great teachers Tom Wright who you would uh, yes. have
0: oh goodness know, yes
1: yes was, yeah. He arrived in my second year and came like a breath of fresh air because he until then I'd assumed that I would go back into the parks departments or I would be working in commercial horticulture and Tom arrived and started talking about this profession called landscape architecture and that just seemed to fit me perfectly because i'd I'd always been one of those kids at school that was i could Do most things, but none of them very well, you know. So I I had to make a decision between science and the arts at the age of twelve or thirteen, and and I chose science because that seemed like the sensible thing to do. But I'd always been a painter, and I I ran the folk club at at Y for three years. So I was always a kind of jack of all trades. And suddenly, landscape architecture, which Tom Wright introduced me and my fellow students do, just seemed to fit me perfectly, because it was all about the arts and being able to design and so on, but at the same time with a sound science behind it.
0: Now what about TV? Most people know you from your TV appearances. When did that all start and how did it go, Chris? It
1: it started a long time ago now, mid-70s. I I started doing occasional things on Pebble Mill at One, which... You certainly will remember, and, and uh, that was that was the kind of the first serious daily magazine program, wasn't it? Midday, it uh, was. and I yeah. I was doing bits and pieces on you know how to how to put up a bird table, how to, where to put bird feeders, that kind of thing. And then, um, partly because of that, I guess I worked with you for for two consecutive weeks of Gardener's World <laughs> when you were presenting Gardener's World. Um, we had we did a something which was way before Alan Titchmarsh and Groundforce and all that, we did a, a makeover of two gardens in Peterborough on a new housing estate.
0: Pretty terrible soil, too, from what that I remember.
1: Very heavy clay, I seem to remember. Uh, and, um, yeah, and I had
0: my hair standing on end because <laughs> we were using a rotavator and I likely use a spade. It you was know? also
1: the year of the Greenfly Plague, which didn't really help my case, at all. <laughs> <laughs> we were covered in Greenfly by the end of the programme. But what I did was was to to design uh, and build something which I call a rich habitat garden. Uh, And I just remember you being very unconvinced about that. You know, you've got this young bloke, (laughs) long hair, beard, um, and he's encouraging us to plant weeds, basically, was (laughs) the message. But actually... It's remarkable
0: we've stayed friends, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly.
1: But it really caught people's imagination. I did a leaflet about the Rich Habitat Garden, and thousands of people wrote into Gardener's World to ask for the leaflet. And we also filmed in my own garden to show what that garden would turn into. So that was quite nice because, you know, the the maturity of, by then, a garden that was four or five years old. But then it took quite a while after that until I moved house again and decided that I'd really like to make a series um, showing how you could take an ordinary garden and over a, a period of a year really change it you know put in a pond plant the trees plant the hedges and all that kind of thing and I spent about two and a half months I think writing to the people that I thought would be interested in the BBC and I assumed it would be the natural history unit or no interest at all and eventually a producer from continuing education a bit of the BBC I'd never even heard of wrote back and said I think You're flogging a dead horse here if you're going to try and get a six-part program filmed over a year. That's such a kind of act of faith. We've no idea whether it will work. But I think I could persuade them to let you have an hour, a one-hour program. And that's what we did. And we filmed every step of the way with me doing all the work, digging the pond, planting the hedge. At the end of it, we transformed the garden. We'd got frogs in the pond, we'd got birds nesting in the nest boxes, and we made this program called Blue Tits and Bumblebees, The Making of a Wildlife Garden, which of course went out at some obscure time on a you know Thursday night because it was continuing education, a very obscure bit of the BBC. That was 1984. I still meet people today who say, oh, we recorded it, we watched that video, uh, it really changed the way we garden." So, that was very, very significant. For me, it was hugely significant. But I think that was the moment when it became legitimate, if you like, to say, well, I love gardens. I love flowers. I want apples on my apple tree. But I actually would really like more bird song. I'd like to be sure of seeing butterflies. I want to do something to conserve frogs and hedgehogs. That whole kind of coming together of real gardening with real nature conservation, right on the doorstep where you could most enjoy it, you know, every day of the year. That film, that one programme, I think really, really secured that.
0: But don't you think that your presence at Chelsea, building that first wildlife garden was also... uh...
1: Yeah, well, I I mean, that was a brave thing to do. it's It's a funny story, really, but you can imagine the RHS didn't quite know what to do with all of this. But... The famous, wonderful Miriam Rothschild had been turning up for several years with wonderful displays of wildflowers, and John Chambers, uh, the seedsman. So they'd been bringing buttercups to Chelsea for a long time, really. Um, and they were both good friends of mine. But I, long, long before, in 1971, I think, I'd actually put on a display at Chelsea of bonsai, which is about as unChris Baines as you could possibly imagine, really. But
0: I, I uh, can't think of you as, uh, <laughs> really distorting and know, maligning terrible. a lovely I know, tree
1: like that. Well, huh? I, I didn't do it, but we. Blake Dan had bought out the nursery of um, a, a wonderful old stager called General Sir Oliver Leese.
0: He was amazing. I ju- yes, I exhibited alongside him. Yeah, well, he, yeah.
1: he was a Second World War hero, um, Monty's right-hand man in North Africa. And when he'd come out of the war, he came out with a passion for, for cacti and bonsai. Um, and he set up this nursery in near Bridge North, quite near where I live. And Blake Dan had bought the nursery and I would just joined Blake down as a young designer um, and uh, the great Bob Bent who was who owned Blake down said we'd really like to do something special for for Oliver Lee's we'd like to try and win him a medal at Chelsea he's been exhibiting for some time so I got the job of designing this display of bonsai, and (laughs) broke all the rules by persuading the RHS to let me have electric light in the the marquee, because it was obvious to me that bonsai really needed to be backlit, because it's all about the silhouette and the shape of things. Anyway, that's kind of a red herring, except that it meant somewhere in the archives of the RHS, I was legitimate. You know, I was on a list, and therefore, when I applied for a plot to make a wildlife garden... Somebody ticked the box and didn't really think about it, you know. Um, And I then was faced with building this garden. um, And, of course, I had no sponsorship, no resources. So I had to grow all of the plants myself uh, in my veg patch, all the primroses and the cowslips and things. And it was fortunate. It was quite a small plot. But there were so many aspects of it that were wonderful, really. I remember arriving... For the first time, and you've been to Chelsea many times. You're just given a, a plot of ground, which, in real life, is a football pitch. Um, and every year they dig it up and they put Chelsea in. And then they relay it. Well, my little patch had a corner post on it and two white lines. Um, and I wanted a lawn that was full of daisies. And of course, I had not a single daisy in my patch. <laughs> so my very first day at Chelsea was going around all the other garden designers saying, can I just dig up your daisies from your patch of grass and swap them with a bit of daisy-free turf. It was a wonderful experience, and again, so different from what was happening at Chelsea in those days.
0: That was certainly a fashion changer without question. Yeah. But, uh, Chris, if somebody wants now to pick up a few tips and things, you, your book, How to Make a Wildlife Garden, I mean, it must be now in several editions.
1: Yeah, it? I mean, that, that came out. I launched that at that garden in Chelsea in 1985, and it's stayed in print ever since. Um, and one of the nice things is that now there's a, a brand new edition. The RHS have published it. And when I, when I got my medal at Chelsea back in 1985, on the back of the medal, the RHS was so confused by the whole idea that it says to J.C. Baines, for a wildfire garden, because <laughs> <laughs> the idea of wildlife and garden in the same sentence was beyond them. So now, 30-odd years later, to have the RHS actually publishing this as a gardening classic is very satisfying, really. And Chelsea, of course, is now full of cowslips and foxgloves and primroses and naturalistic pools and streams and things. The whole the whole mood of the place has, has moved in my kind of direction. So it's been quite a journey. But, I mean, the the new book has also been a great opportunity to just look back and review what has changed. And the changes have been very significant, some good and some bad, Um, But it's very clear, I think, now that gardens and gardeners are absolutely fundamental to nature conservation in in Britain. There are over a million acres of gardens. That's a much bigger area of land than all the nature reserves added together. And if you just think about the size of the industry now that relates to bird feeders and nest boxes and bird food, hedgehog homes, you know, bee hotels, all of that stuff. None of it existed, really, 35 years ago. And now any garden centre you want to go into, you'll see the whole section full of wildlife gardening materials. Plants, lots of plants labelled to be good for butterflies or good good for birds. A lot of wildflowers available. Wildflower seeds, you know. So there's been an enormous change.
0: But Chris, we have to thank you for that. And and really, it's kind of you to give us our time. Uh, Congratulations. Wish you every continuing success uh, with uh, the RHS Companion to Wildlife Gardens. There are some queries in the post this week too. Mrs Brown from Salisbury uh, writes to ask how to care for Calathea. Now, that's one of the tropical plants that we... uh, Often see in uh, offices. It has quite a dark green, long, oval sort of leaf, but with, uh, what shall I call it, maroon, deep maroon uh, patches across the leaf. So it's a quite ornamental foliage plant, but of course it does come from the tropics. It is happy in central heated homes as far as temperature is concerned, but of course it needs humidity and some of our rooms can be a bit dry and so you need to watch the watering. The age-old tip, pick the pot up. If it's heavy, it's wet. If it's light, it's dry. So when you draw the curtains at night, just check to see that your calathea is just nicely damp. You can subscribe to the Sun Gardening newsletter at sungardening.co.uk and you can subscribe to the podcast by pressing the subscribe button on iTunes. Thanks for listening.